Welcome to Let's Talk About Race, an intergenerational discussion about race with independent journalists from the Pacific Northwest. From Grassroot News Northwest, I'm your host and moderator, Lenita Duke. Hi, I'm Althea Billings. I'm a journalist and radio producer in Portland, Oregon, and I'm Generation Z. Greetings. I am Professor Johnson, political analyst and educator and baby boomer from the Lone Star State, Texas. I am Cecil Charles Prescott. I host a talk show in Portland, Oregon, and I am a baby boomer. I'm Nia Gray, the faith reporter from Pennsylvania, and I'm Generation X. Hello. My name is Mary Lee, and I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for The Mill, the Multnomah Idea Lab. Come on. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that make me. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. Talk about race. Let's talk about race. You're listening to Let's Talk About Race. I'm Althea Billings. As we enter a history-denying, book-burning, anti-progressive era, the crew at LTAR wants to remind the world and ourselves of the progressive history we continue to make. For this generation, the sports boycott of the summer of 2020 will go down in history as the day the balls stopped bouncing for social change. Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old black man, was left partially paralyzed after a white police officer shot him seven times in the back outside an apartment complex in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on August 23, 2020. The shooting, which happened in front of three of Mr. Blake's children, was captured by a neighbor in a video that circulated widely and rapidly on social media. Outrage spread quickly. It was another reason for nationwide protests for racial justice following the deaths of George Floyd, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, and other black Americans after encounters with police. Professional athletes in several leagues, led by the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA, joined the protests by refusing to play. This was and is historical, and as the right-wing backlash and revised history continues, please do not forget the day the ball stopped bouncing. Reverend Cecil shares this perspective. When I was young, it was a moment when sports athletes stood up or took a knee to make a difference. We will see what will happen with the lives of those athletes and those closest to them will have an enormous change upon the individuals and those people company, corporations, and teams, and communities that they touch. On this edition of Let's Talk About Race, we reflect and celebrate a moment in time. When the basketball stopped bouncing, when the pitcher stepped off the mound, and when the tennis racket stopped swinging, on August 26, 2020, NBA players stayed in their locker rooms. No, they are not. They're playing basketball. We love their basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not. No, they are not playing basketball. No, 
they are not playing basketball. I think each generation has a moment when they are called to stand up and witness to justice and truth. We see that in generations past, whether it is baseball in the 40s, whether it is boxing in the 60s, whether it's the Olympics in the 60s, or whether it is the Black Lives Matter moment in the recent years. I think it is possible that it will last, but I think the importance of it is that these moments wake up a generation And what we see from this wake-up moment are people being energized, making commitments that will last throughout their lives and perhaps not change the larger sports world, but will have at least a dribbling effect on the movement for social justice. We encourage all citizens to educate themselves, take peaceful and responsible action, and remember to vote on November 3rd on behalf of the Milwaukee Bucks. Often before these games, there have been moments of focus by the athletes on social justice. Players throughout the league have been vocal all summer about an ongoing commitment to this. You're going to see that here. Public address announcer Mike Ross. Racism has been embedded in our society for far too long. Today and every day, the NHL and the hockey community are committed in the mission to combat racial injustice and achieve a fair society for all. The NHL would like to take this moment and call out to our fans and communities to stand up for social justice and the effort to end racism. I think one interesting thing that we haven't really talked about, but I think was a factor is, you know, the, the NBA players are making millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is some financial discussion to be had here, and there are business discussions to be had here. But um, at the end of the day, how did you guys come to the agreement that that was not the most important thing? Right. This was, this was a part of the aspect of boycotting and not playing that um, that I had to bring to the players, you know. And for me, I'm very, I'm a very principled person. And so when we talk about playing and not playing, the implications that that has on a, as a, on a female basketball player than it does on a male basketball player are dire. And the sacrifice that we are making is in a lot of ways, you know, monetarily more for us. Um, but I think that still speaks to the metaphor of what we dedicated this season to, say her name, how women are often forgotten. And although out of all the sports that have decided not to play today, currently we are the least watched, and we realize that that is a sacrifice that, that, we're, that we're making. No, they are not. They're playing basketball. We love the basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. And now with the with the assassination of, of, of Mr. Blake and 
Kenosha, Wisconsin, the play, players have said, this is enough. And so what you have is the Milwaukee Bucks team saying that we will not go onto the court. And, and, and they played where they play is not that far from where um, Mr. Blake was assassinated by the cops. And so we have this ripple effect of players who have been rumbling for some time now saying that we will not play and we will make a very vocal statement. And so you have not only high profile on players such as LeBron James, who have been very vocal in the in, in these past few weeks, but all the players saying that we will not play. What will happen? I don't know. You know, you have that ripple effect with the WNBA and now you just mentioned Major League Baseball. It, it because to my mind, at least, high-profile players have a social obligation not only to make money for themselves, but because they are so high-profile, they have the opportunity to bear witness to social justice movements. And we'll see what will happen. Professor Johnson, how significant is this? I think it's incredibly significant. And I feel a certain amount of optimism to think they're putting a lot on the line by not playing. As you said, they've worked their entire career to get to this point, And they have basically sent a message that this is more important. I feel uh, optimistic. As Cecil said, and you have said, it is a ripple effect. We've got three sports now that have come out openly and said they're boycotting, they're not going to participate. And uh, LeBron James, they had an interview with him or a brief interview with him, and he said that he is 100% on board with this and that he is sick of this happening. Nia Gray, our faith reporter, don't you find it interesting that these millionaires, these black males still have to go through what Jamal, who works down at the car wash, has to go through in America. Black Lives Matter. Well, sure. And it was a rookie that was on the Bucks team two years ago, Sterling Brown, who was actually tased and arrested over a minor parking infraction. And it's interesting because he sued the city of Milwaukee. They gave him a settlement or offered him a settlement, and he turned it down so that he wouldn't be uh, so he would be able to continue to speak out against injustice. So he didn't sign the, the non-disclosure agreement. He didn't sign the NDA. So I thought that that was very noble. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're a millionaire basketball player or you're Jamal bagging groceries at Safeway, the police see you. In fact, Chris Rock, and not to use crude language, said, you know, what is a millionaire comedian in a Land Rover? He's in you were probably going to have to cut that, right? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you want me to say it again? With that yes, say take one. <laughs> sorry, I was watching Malcolm X. I'm all riled up. So, yes, the NBA players, they know that when they come off the court and they get in their cars, the police see them exactly as they see Jamal bagging groceries down at Safeway, that they consider them an inward, whether they have money or not. Althea. Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting that speaks to really the significance is that, you know, the NBA put in a lot of effort to make this season happen in quarantine. They've got a bubble going down at Disney World. They have press bubbled in with them to make sure that they could have this 
this season and still be able to, as you mentioned before, and as Cecil was pointing out, still be able to make money. The idea is to not try to pull focus. That these, specifically for the Milwaukee Bucks, this is something that happened right where they are supposed to be representing from. And by not playing, they're not giving people the opportunity to escape the reality of what's happening, specifically policymakers in the community who have not pressed charges against the officers who committed this act. I also, as we are recording this today, this is the four-year anniversary of when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling in protest of racial injustice and police brutality in the NFL. And so it's interesting to see how teams in the NBA, like you said, it's not the NBA as an institution, but MLB as an institution and the WNBA are now backing off of having their games that are scheduled for this particular time and comparing that to how the NFL treated Colin Kaepernick and essentially blacklisted him for, you know, him using his, using, yeah, using his platform to speak out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Talk About Race, an intergenerational discussion about race with independent journalists from the Pacific Northwest. From Grassroot News Northwest, I'm your host and moderator, Lenita Duke. Hi, I'm Althea Billings. I'm a journalist and radio producer in Portland, Oregon, and I'm Generation Z. Greetings. I am Professor Johnson, political analyst and educator and baby boomer from the Lone Star State, Texas. I am Cecil Charles Prescott. I host a talk show in Portland, Oregon, and I am a baby boomer. I'm Nia Gray, the faith reporter from Pennsylvania, and I'm Generation X. I'm Michelle Melton, and I'm an associate producer and technology reporter in Georgia, and I'm a millennial. Hello, my name is Mary Lee, and I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for The Mill, the Multnomah Idea Lab. You are listening to Let's Talk About Race, a look back at the summer of 2020 when organized sports stopped bouncing the ball for social justice. But I'm really happy that the younger players, LeBron James, are stepping up and they're no longer just going to shut up and play basketball. Cecil? Yeah. um, Michael Jordan was somewhat a reflection of the 90s. Certainly social justice activism was not a new thing. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who played in the era before Michael Jordan, accused uh, Michael Jordan of taking commerce over conscience. Uh, and, and so that I'm glad to see that a younger generation has certainly uh, agreed to and to, to advocate for social justice. And, you know, even later, you know, now the rich multi-billionaire Michael Jordan has now fork over with some of his dollars to social justice organizers. I'm pleased to see that people in this generation have chosen um, to follow the cause of social justice. Professor Johnson. I think Michael Jordan has always been criticized for not speaking out. One mother of one of the young men that was killed over a fight over his sneakers asked him to speak out and he refused to do so. So he just never wanted to take a political position. And I think that comment about um, 
commerce over conscience is a good one. Also, the times were different. I think we have a greater understanding in this time and social media and the instantaneous ability to find out things and for people with phones that are also cameras to be able to expose the truth in a way that didn't happen before. So it's a different time. And to give Michael Jordan credit, he has stepped up now and aligned himself with uh, social justice and put some money, some behind it as well. So I think he's, you know, he's come around to see the importance of using his platform. This is Nia Gray, and welcome to The Faith Report, where evangelism meets social justice. African-American sports figures are no strangers to activism, from Bill Russell in the 1960s to the Fists of Fury at the 1968 Summer Olympics, where the gold and silver winners, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, stepped onto the podium and raised their fists above their bowed heads to silently protest racial discrimination. This month, the Milwaukee Bucks made an unprecedented statement by boycotting Game 5 of the NBA playoffs. It just so happens to be the four-year anniversary of Colin Kaepernick's first kneeling during a football game to protest police brutality. The boycotts expanded into canceling the NBA playoffs for a week, and other sports organizations joined in solidarity, including the WNBA, Major League Baseball, and Major League Soccer. The Cleveland Cavaliers superstar LeBron James said, I will not just shut up and dribble. I get to sit up here and talk about what's really important. As athletes come forward to protest and speak out against systemic racism, is that enough to influence change? The Trump White House and the GOP convention failed to acknowledge the complete stall of most American sports. But the sports world and many Americans were watching and they were ready to act. Black athletes are superstars on the field or the hardwood, but when they're driving in their cars, they're just another black face that's often racially profiled by the police. My hope is that the protests exposed to the American public that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others are not just isolated incidents, but a product of systemic racism. Many white Americans, including Donald Trump, only blame bad apples for police brutality. The deaths of so many African-Americans at the hand of law enforcement is just a few bad cops, and that's to be expected. You always have a bad apple, no matter where you go, they say. In fact, in a recent survey, it showed 72% of white evangelical Protestants said that they believe that the killings of African-American men by police are isolated incidents, which stands in sharp contrast to the African-American Protestants who believe these incidents are part of a broader pattern of how the police mistreat minorities. This reveals a shameful truth in the church, that Jesus's message of love your neighbor and all are equal in Christ is taking a back seat that race, not denomination or theology, is the determining factor when it comes to people's perspectives. Sadly, the survey also showed white Christians are less likely to believe the experiences of black Americans than non-Christian whites. Racism has and still exists in the church. 
so-called Christians who claim to love all in the name of Jesus are being put to shame by non-church attending people. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King also understood that political and symbolic power that sports has. He understood that the athletic field could be a powerful megaphone for civil rights and racial justice. And he famously said, this is a protest and a struggle against racism and injustice. That's what we're working to eliminate. No one looking at these demands can ignore the truth of them. Freedom always demands sacrifice. And the athletes have the courage to say, we're going to be men and the United States of America have deprived us of our manhood, of our dignity, and our native worth. And consequently, we're going to stand up and make the sacrifices. This has been Nia Gray with your Faith Report. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not. No, they are not. And for Fred Van Vliet, who is a free agent and is literally saying what he said with maybe $30 million on the table, and yet the character of Fred Van Vliet to say, we need to slow down, we need to pause, and we need to ask ourselves a question. And I said this earlier, Scott, as American citizens, every single one of us should be asking the same question. Are we on the side of right and truth or the wrong side? And are we individually doing enough? So I hope we follow the example of these high character men of the NBA. Um, we entered with so many issues, so many things going on. COVID, the, the pandemic, George Floyd, social issues, political issues, so many things are at, were at hand. It's just been an incredible off-season and camp, and now we're finally together working. But never before this year has it been so deep and so rich uh, in the exchanges with our players in, in how they've taken this opportunity to teach us more and deeper about what the life of a black man is like in America, black men and women. And they've, they've, they've been compelled to, to speak out more than ever. Um, there's been less fear and less concern of, you know, what's going to happen. I, I love our environment is such that our guys are willing to say what they, what they can say. And they're okay about that, which we need to hear because this has been a process of truth telling and, uh, and reality checks. Um, that just brings me to a point where as we're speaking about all that's going on, and this is about racism in America, that white people don't know. They don't know enough. And they need to be coached up. And they need to be educated about what the heck is going on in this world. They can't, the black people can't scream anymore. They can't march anymore. They can't bear their souls anymore to what they've, been, what they've lived with for hundreds of years. Because white guys came over from Europe and started a new country with a great idea and a great ideals and wrote down great, uh, great, great writings and laws and all of that about democracy and freedom and equality for all. And then it ain't happened. It is, that's not what happened because we went down this, this other road here. We followed economics and rich, rich white guys making money, and they put together a, a system of slavery. And we've never left it, really. It's never gone away. And 
the, the really amazing thing that I've learned is black people know the truth. They know exactly what's going on. It's white people that don't know. And uh, it's not that they're not telling us. They've been telling us the stories. And we know what's right and what's wrong. We just have not been open to listen to it. We've been unwilling to, to accept the real history. We've been taught a, a false history of what happened in this country. We've been, we've been basing things on false premises. And it has not been about equality for all. It has not been about <clears throat> freedom for all. It's not been for uh, uh, opportunity for all. And it needs to be, because this, this this is a this is a humanity issue that we're dealing with. This is this is a white people's issue to get over it and learn what's going on and to figure it out and start loving everybody that is that is part of our country and that want to come to our country wherever they want to come from. Our players are screaming at us. Can can you feel me? Can you see me? Can you hear me? They just want to be respected. They just want to be accepted, just like all of our white children and, and families and, and uh, want to be. It's no different because we're all the same. That was Doris Burke, longtime sports announcer from ESPN, followed by Peter Carroll, coach of the NFL Seattle Seahawks. You're listening to Let's Talk About Race. This segment, Free Throws for Justice. This is Let's Talk About Race, an award-winning, progressive, intergenerational roundtable of journalists from around the country. We go deep on current events and the role that race plays in our world today. Our show is hosted by Lenita Duke, the award-winning producer of Grassroots News Northwest. Our panel includes Professor Diane Johnson, journalist Althea Billings, talk show host and Reverend Cecil Prescott, and host of The Faith Report, Nia Gray, and proud bureaucrat, Mary Lee. This is Let's Talk About Race. Come on. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things. Talk about things that make me. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. Talk about race. Welcome back to Let's Talk About Race. Coming up, our satire piece on Wells Fargo. In your time as chairman and CEO, Wells has been famous for cross-selling, which is pushing existing customers to open more accounts. Cross-selling is one of the main reasons that Wells has become the most valuable bank in the world. Wells measures cross-selling by the number of different accounts a customer has with Wells. Other big banks average fewer than three accounts per customer, but you, set the target at eight accounts. Every customer of Wells should have eight accounts with the bank. And that's not because you ran the numbers and found that the average customer needed eight banking accounts. It is because, quote, eight rhymes with great. This was your rationale right there in your 2010 annual report. Cross-selling isn't about helping customers get what they need. If it was, you wouldn't have to squeeze your employees so hard to make it happen. No, cross-selling is all about pumping up Wells' stock price, isn't it? No, cross-selling is shorthand for uh, deepening relationships. We only oh, do well. Let me stop you right there. You say no, no. Uh, I'm, Here I'm... are the transcripts of 12 quarterly earnings calls that you participated in 
From 2012 to 2014, the three full years in which we know this scam was going on, I'd like to submit them for the record, if I may, Mr. Chair. Thank you. These are calls where you personally made your pitch to investors and analysts about why Wells Fargo is a great investment. And in all 12 of these calls, you personally cited Wells Fargo's success at cross-selling retail accounts as one of the main reasons to buy more stock in the company. Let me read you a few quotes that you had. April 2012, quote, we grew our retail banking cross-sell ratio to a record 5.98 products per household. A year later, April 2013, quote, we achieved record retail banking cross-sell of 6.1 products per household. April 2014, quote, we achieved record retail banking cross-sell of 6.17 products per household. The ratio kept going up and up, and it didn't matter whether customers used those accounts or not. And guess what? Wall Street loved it. Here is just a sample of the reports from top analysts in those years, all recommending that people buy Wells Fargo stock in part because of the strong cross-sell numbers. And I'd like to submit them for the record. Without objections. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So when investors saw good cross-sell numbers, they did while this scam was going on. That was very good for you personally, wasn't it, Mr. Stumpf? Do you know how much money, how much value your stock holdings in Wells Fargo gained while this scam was underway? Well, first of all, it was not a scam. And cross-sell is a way of deepening relationships. When customers we've, we've use We've been through this, Mr. Stump. I asked you a very simple it, question. It, Do you know how much the value of your stock went up while this scam was going on? It's all of my compensation is in our uh, uh, public Do filing. you know how much it was? It's all in the public filing. Oh, you're right. It is all in the public records because I looked it up. While this scam was going on, you personally held an average of 6.75 million shares of Wells stock. The share price during this time period went up by about $30, which comes out to more than $200 million in gains, all for you personally, and thanks in part to those cross-sell numbers that you talked about on every one of those calls. Wouldn't it be great if there was real facts and truth in advertising? If there was, a Wells Fargo bank ad might sound something like this. At Wells Fargo Bank, don't trust us. Wells Fargo is among the worst banks in America, and many West Coast cities and county governments still bank with us. By the numbers, we are the worst. We blame the calculation error in mortgage underwriting that resulted in 625 customers being incorrectly denied or not offered mortgage modifications to make their home loan more affordable. And in 400 of those cases, their homes were foreclosed upon. In September of 2016, Wells Fargo 
we acknowledge that employees were under pressure to meet very aggressive sales targets. 3.5 million bank accounts were open without permission. And of course, this generated fees and charges for us. And 528,000 customers were signed up for online bill payment without authorization. Wells Fargo, we treat fraud victims like rubbish by closing their bank accounts without investigating potential criminal activity. By law, a bank is supposed to investigate potential criminal activities when a customer complains of fraud. Instead, we at Wells Fargo, we closed their bank accounts and got rid of that customer. Our CEO at Wells Fargo, he lost his job, but he walked away with $134 million. At Wells Fargo Bank, we are the worst. This is Let's Talk About Race, an award-winning progressive intergenerational roundtable of journalists from around the country. We go deep on current events and the role that race plays in our world today. Our show is hosted by Lenita Duke, the award-winning producer of Grassroots News Northwest. Our panel includes Professor Diane Johnson, journalist Althea Billings, talk show host and Reverend Cecil Prescott, and host of The Faith Report, Nia Gray, and proud bureaucrat Mary Lee. This is Let's Talk About Race. Come on. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things. Talk about things that make me. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. Talk about race. You are listening to Let's Talk About Race, a look back at the summer of 2020 when organized sports stopped bouncing the ball for social justice. No, they are not. They're playing No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. I think it's amazing how quickly in our collective minds we forget. How many years has it been before um, Collins um, received an opportunity to try again to play football, but he lost four or five years at the height of his career. It's the rare occasion when sports and politics collide and an NFL quarterback has certainly ignited a firestorm. We're talking about Colin Kaepernick. He's the San Francisco 49ers quarterback, and he's been refusing to stand for the national anthem. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people... You know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. It's something that I've seen, I felt, um, wasn't quite sure how to deal with uh, originally. And it is something that's evolved. It's something as I've gained more knowledge about, you know, what's going on in this country in the past, what's going on currently. Uh, these aren't new situations. This isn't new ground. It's things that have gone on in this country for years and years and have never been addressed. And they need to be. I'll continue to sit 
I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. Uh, to me, this is something that has to change. And when there's significant change, and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent, and this country is representing people the way that it's supposed to, I'll stand. There's a lot of things that need to change. Uh, one, one specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards. You know, I have great respect for men and women that have fought for this country. I have family. I have friends that have gone and fought for this country. And they fight for freedom. They fight for the people. They fight for liberty and justice for everyone. And that's not happening. I mean, people are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain up as far as, you know, giving freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. It's something that's not happening. And I've seen videos. I've seen circumstances where men and women that have been in the military have come back and been treated unjustly by the country they fought for and have been murdered by the country they fought for on our land. That's not right. This stand wasn't for me. This stand wasn't because I feel like I'm being put down uh, in any kind of way. This is because I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice. People that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. So I'm in a position where I can do that and I'm gonna do that for people that can't. I think a lot of my teammates come from areas where this might be a situation. Their families might be put in this situation. Uh, it's something that I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I really respect you for what you're doing and what you're standing for. So to me, that's something that I know what I'm doing what's right and I know other people see what I'm doing is right. It's something that we have to come together, we have to unite, we have to unify and make a change. Hmm. It reminds me of another athlete who stood up or refused to do what the nations thought that he should do. Muhammad Ali, who lost three, four, five years at the prime of his career. It has been said that I have two alternatives. Either go to jail or go to the army. But I would like to say that there is another alternative. And that alternative is justice. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. He refused induction on the grounds of his religious convictions on war. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. It took an all-white jury less than a half hour to find Muhammad Ali guilty of all charges and specifications. He was sentenced to the maximum five years in prison and was fined $10,000. I find nothing amusing or interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. He has been found guilty. He is out on bail. He will inevitably go to prison, as well he should. He's a simplistic fool and a pawn. Do you share the same concern uh, that uh, Muhammad has for his draft status? Oh, I certainly do. Uh, my, my views on the draft are very clear. I'm against it. 
And I think the sooner our country does away with the draft, the better it will be for everybody. There have been many questions put to me why I refuse to be inducted into the United States Army, especially as some have pointed out, many have pointed out, when not taking the step, I will lose so much. And I would like to say to um, those of the press and those of the people who think that I lost so much by not taking the step, I would like to say that I did not lose a thing up until this very moment. I haven't lost one thing. I have gained a lot. Things have a way of repeating themselves. And we will see athletes stand up. But they will pay a price. It happens again and again. But that doesn't mean we don't stop. It just means we have to continue to tell the story and recommit ourselves to the cause of justice. You are listening to Let's Talk About Race, a look back at the summer of 2020 when organized sports stopped bouncing the ball for social justice. No, they are not. They're playing basketball. We love the basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. No, they are not playing basketball. I think that without uh, sports, the civil rights movement couldn't have happened. I think sports made Americans more comfortable uh, to accept what later became social and legal and political progress. Jackie Robinson uh, breaking the color barrier in baseball uh, led to later where we could have a social movement 10 years later where Rosa Parks could sit on a bus and then 10 years after that voting. Because as people began to be more comfortable in each other's presence, whether it was at a ballpark or a basketball court, people could then begin to see the fallacy of a superior race or an inferior race. As long as something is away from you, as long as something is something you don't have to touch and interact, you can make it anything you want. Inferior, superior, doesn't matter. But when you sit next to a guy and his kid is eating popcorn like yours and they are not innately different, it becomes, even without effort, uh, more difficult for you to demonize them and make them pariahs. And I think that sports brought people together, even if they backed them into each other, more than uh, uh, the uh, history gives it credit for, which made people more conducive uh, when the civil rights movement started. You are listening to Let's Talk About Race, a look back at the summer of 2020 when organized sports stopped bouncing the ball for social justice. Black lives matter! Black lives matter! Black lives matter! We have a great platform um, as NFL athletes to be able to say that we're in agreement with what's going on right now. We really want to make a change in this world. It's on us to bring people together to really make a change. I really want to leave a better world for my sons, uh, something that I'm proud for them to have. So, you know... Us being out here today is really about them, um, changing the world that they have and for their children um, and really making it a great world. We are not here today as the Denver Broncos. I'm here today as Justin Simmons, a member of the Denver community. And I want to make sure 
I want to make sure that the people in this community understand that. The message was like, you know, for my white brothers and sisters, like, keep speaking out, keep being an encouragement, keep being a voice because you're bridging the gap. And then for my black brothers and sisters, it was, hey, let's show our white brothers and sisters grace in trying to speak out. You know, it may not be pretty at times and it may not be exactly um, what you want to hear, but that we're all trying to figure this out. I understand the grief. I understand the pain. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. I'm standing here today telling you hate does not drive out hate. I want to show my teammates that I have their back 100% and let them know that I do see a problem as well. Uh, and that's what we're all doing here. We're all here to, you know, you read our shirts, you read, you read our... Um, you know, masks, all that kind of stuff. So that's what it's about. I think that with our platform, being a leader is crucial. Um, and that's something I take very seriously. My mother raised me to love all, to care for all. But she also taught me the color of my skin, I might get treated different. And that happened through my lifetime. So that's one of the biggest things I want to help help fight and change in America is for I got a new baby girl and I don't want to have to I don't want her to have to go through some of the stuff I've been through we push out the hate out and we bring love in and that's kind of what the narrative is what we want to push and what we want to bring to all this is we want to push hate out and bring love in the time is always right to do what's right once once we have awareness we gotta we gotta come up out of oblivion my teammates they killed it up here um, I'm in the locker room with these guys each and every day. I'm proud of these guys. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of Denver. I'm proud of the state of Colorado. Um, we got to keep this going. You are listening to Let's Talk About Race, a look back at the summer of 2020 when organized sports stopped bouncing the ball for social justice. Um, thank you. We appreciate you. The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme in the sprint races thanks to men like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Yesterday, they came in first and third in the 200-meter dash and then stood on the victory platform with bowed heads wearing black socks and gloves in a racial protest. Before the Olympics, there was a furor in this country over a threatened boycott by Negro athletes. Then most of them decided that participation in the Olympic would further the cause of civil rights in this country and abroad. The Negro athletes wear buttons reading Olympic Project for Human Rights. There were some boos in the stadium last night. ABC Sports Editor Howard Cosell spoke to Tommy Smith after he accepted his gold medal. Tommy, would you explain to the people of America exactly what you did and why you did it? First of all, Howard, I would like to say I'm very happy to have won the gold medal here in Mexico City. The right glove that I wore on my right hand signified the power within black America. The left glove, my teammate John Carlos wore on his left hand, made an art, my right hand to his left hand, also signify black unity. The scarf that was worn around my neck signified blackness. John Carlos and me wore socks, black socks without shoes, to also signify our poverty. And this is the motivation, the symbolism of what you did. Now, 
Do you think you represented all black athletes in doing this? Uh, I can say I represented black America. Uh, I'm very proud to be a black man, as I said earlier, to have, and also to have won the gold medal. And this, I thought, uh, that I could represent my people by letting them know that uh, I'm proud to be a black man. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Talk About Race, an intergenerational discussion about race with independent journalists from the Pacific Northwest. From Grassroot News Northwest, I'm your host and moderator, Lenita Duke. Hi, I'm Althea Billings. I'm a journalist and radio producer in Portland, Oregon, and I'm Generation Z. Greetings. I am Professor Johnson, political analyst and educator and baby boomer from the Lone Star State, Texas. I am Cecil Charles Prescott. I host a talk show in Portland, Oregon, and I am a baby boomer. I'm Nia Gray, the faith reporter from Pennsylvania, and I'm Generation X. I'm Michelle Melton, and I'm an associate producer and technology reporter in Georgia, and I'm a millennial. Hello, my name is Mary Lee, and I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for The Mill, the Multnomah Idea Lab. Come on. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things. Talk about things that make me. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. Talk about race. And the struggle continues. But Max. What was your reaction to how each team handled this, their social justice actions last night? And also feel free to comment on the reaction from the crowd as well. Well, I mean, I, to me, that's really what it's about, the reaction from the crowd, which was very, as people said, disappointing and even maybe disgusting, I think is a better word. Uh, I, I think, first of all, like the most innocent explanation of that reaction, and there's some truth to it, it may be multi-layered, is that people are like, come on, we don't want to see, we just want things to be sports the way we like them and the way we know them and everything back to normal, right? Then maybe that's a reaction to that. Part of it is some bad people, you know, who don't like this idea of social justice because they subscribe to white supremacy. I mean, that's alive in this country. Um, and, and part of it is just people in um, low-quality information news silos where they've been propagandized against just people even standing up and locking arms and what that means. Um, but you understand that when people say even the most innocent explanation, I just want to get back to normal what that really means. As I've been saying, in, the, in, in light of this pandemic, people have a real impulse to want to get things back to the way they know them. And leagues, which are predominantly African-American, are saying, well, wait a minute, many of the players and their allies are saying, wait a minute, before we get back to normal, normal has to be okay for everyone, not just some people. And there's this strong impulse in this country, and we saw it in the last general election, what's called, it's a revanchist impulse, revanchist, meaning you want to take back what you feel you've lost. And in this case, it seems to me to be civil rights progress and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, including... Um, players organizing together across racial lines um, to make things better for an oppressed minority, wanting to make things back the way they were. There was a campaign run on make this country the way it used to be again. 
Um, and, and, and that seems to me to be at loggerheads now. One group, a multiracial coalition of people of goodwill saying we want normal to work for everyone. And another group, a minority, but a large one, says uh, in terms of the population is saying, no, no, no. We want it the way it used to be to hell with you. And that's what it seems to me the fans were saying with their booze. And the struggle continues. Following the Mercury's 99-94 loss to the Los Angeles Sparks on the road, Texas native Brianna Turner had strong words speaking to the media for just one minute and solely about the Uvalde school shooting. We have a serious issue. There's 535 people in Congress. This shouldn't be normalized. I've been witnessing school shooting for the past 10 years. Sandy Hook was my first memory 10 years ago, and we're still here. So we have to do better. According to Education Week, there have been 27 school shootings with injuries or deaths this year alone. This week's shooting comes just 10 days after the supermarket shooting in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 dead. I know this is business as usual. This is normal in America. We experience mass shootings. We go to work. We go to school the next day. We process. We don't process because it's so normalized. Turner, who grew up just five hours away from Uvalde, Texas, was the only Mercury player to address the media. Teammate Skylar Diggins-Smith was by her side, but the two abruptly ended the post-game Zoom call after Turner's comments. Mercury coach Vanessa Nygaard expressed solidarity with the players. I'm very proud of our, our, our women of our league, uh, the players of Mercury. have always taken the forefront when there's any kind of thing that they can stand up for and make a statement. And, and they really lead over any athletes, I think, in all the world. And uh, I stand with them. Um, especially speaking as a parent, um, the school shootings just absolutely ripped my heart out. And the struggle continues. Earlier this week, Golden State Warriors head coach Steve Kerr implored Congress to pass legislation. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here, and a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8 which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight. But I want 
every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister, brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk About Race. I like to end the show by saying every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you for listening. For more information on Let's Talk About Race, visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1. Or check us out on Instagram at L-T-A-R show or www.letstalkrace.net. The following program has been produced by Grassroot News Northwest. Gray, the faith reporter from Pennsylvania, and I'm Generation X. I'm Michelle Melton, and I'm an associate producer and technology reporter in Georgia, and I'm a millennial. Hello, my name is Mary Lee. And I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for The Mill, the Multnomah Idea Lab. Come on. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things. Talk about things that make me. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. Talk about race.